You're listening to the A.S.I. Podcast. Hi, I'm David, the A.S.I. A.I. Via naturalreaders.com. You get it? A.S.I. A.I. Ha, ha, ha. Season 6, Episode 33, Entitled Status Update Part 2. Status Update Shows have been sliced up into bite-sized chunks for mental digestive purposes. Sometimes I feel the fear of uncertainty stinging clear And I, I can't help but ask myself how much I let the fear take the wheel and steer Intro in the car. <laughs> Going back to some nostalgia on the ASI podcast, as a lot of those older shows were recorded with me driving around. So, but don't worry, it's just the intro. All right, we're gonna go back to studio mic in a minute. We just gotta give it up for uh, the uh, digital audio project robot. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. Listeners to the ASI podcast, my name is Russ Shaw. This is part two of Status Update. Something that social media encourages you to do every 15 seconds. (laughs) Post a status update. So uh, today on the show, uh, I talk about, uh, we're going to kind of pick up where we left off. Am I a progressive? There's a question. What does that mean? Uh, also, today's podcast, as are all of them through the website, asi247.org, is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp.com.org.info. BetterHelp can get you connected with a therapist, counselor, or someone in the healing arts in your uh, community, in your neck of the woods, so to speak. So check out uh, betterhelp.com or check out uh, ASI247.org where there are links right there. You can get in touch with uh, those folks there. Send me an email. Hey, I got my email working. Uh, (laughs) So it's not so spotty, so to speak. Uh, Send me an email, man. I'd love to hear from you. Russ at ASI247.org. O-R-G, the Twitter handle, at Rushshaw, all one word, on Twitter, uh, Instagram, it would be uh, c.rushshaw, at c.rushshaw, the letter C, alright, on Instagram. So, uh, that's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to talk about heart, mind, love, sex, and affection, the uh, Facebook uh, group that you can join. I'm not even going to mention that. 
Anyway, we're gonna get right into it. All right, this is uh, gonna pick up where we left off. Little bumper by Incubus. Drive. What does it mean to drive? Right. Um, penetration. The sexual needs series of shows continues. I'm still working on that one. Uh, but uh, drive has something to do with libido, libidinal uh, influences. How how does sex drive influence other drives? Uh, it's kind of a teaser for you there. Uh, but we're gonna pick up where we left off with. Uh, uh, just after I ask you for money, also, right? I'm gonna ask you, <laughs> as a as a donor to the podcast, to uh, hey, chip in a few bucks. Go to uh, asi247.org, and you can donate to the podcast there, or use Venmo uh, at C Russ Shaw on Venmo. Thanks. Here you go. What if the queen is just unhealthy repression? And hear me, all right? Um, sexual repression, the opposite of sexual repression is not sexually compulsive behavior. It's a healthy, living, breathing relationship. Getting to the idea in the book of Genesis itself, naked and unashamed, where sex isn't dirty or has this taboo in the relationship. It's like my friend Jay Stringer said, you know, learning about sex in church is like going to poison control and learning how to cook. Like if Judge Judy was a traffic court justice who also taught as a driving instructor on the weekends. <laughs> I came up with that one. But you see what I'm talking about, right? Despite passing the tests and getting the license, people are still pushing their foot to the floor, whether it's in driving or sexuality. In the church, sex tends to be taught like it's driving instruction. How's that working? I mean, there's some evidence to support the fact that in religious circles where all the rules are taught, there's more of a problem with sexually compulsive behavior than there is in the secular world. For example, couples who feel open enough to communicate back and forth have more sex. So, you know, the question beckons, how did sex get so convoluted and complicated? Fear. You know, fear and shame. And I also believe sexual repression is a symptom of a deeper issue. It's 
again, like sexual, like sex addiction. All right. I'll just call it that. There's just too many syllables and sexually compulsive behavior. I know that that's supposed to be the the correct buzzword, but I'm just going to call it sex addiction. That's what it feels like. It functions very much the same as addiction. So my point is, I've said since the beginning that this is a secondary issue. Sex addiction isn't the major problem. It is a dashboard engine light that's coming on in your life or in your heart. In in a lot of this kind of sobriety culture is, you know, which I think is great because when it comes to chemical stuff, it saves people's lives, all right? But most of this sobriety first attitude is simply reaching up behind the dashboard and cutting the engine light, in my opinion. The engine light is there to show us that there's something deeper going on in the engine that needs attention. And I believe very much like clipping the engine light so you don't see a problem I believe that sexual repression can be just as destructive to a relationship as sexually compulsive behavior. Is the queen in this metaphor from my branded American evangelical Christian worldview at the time a form of repression? Because, listen... Instead of demonizing or otherizing the queen, a.k.a. our sexual needs, what if we got curious about the queen? What if we got curious about the floorboards, about the, the moisture in the bathroom? Sometimes when you're dry and thirsty, fighting for life in the dark, cold, smelly, musty, Doesn't it make sense that once our little queen ant became accustomed to that, leaky gray water is still wet and nourishing to some degree. And I think it's an important metaphor, the queen ant metaphor. But again, um, I don't want you to merely be sexually sober. I'm working to get you to see that sexual repression, when it comes to your body's physical needs is not necessarily sexual self-control. That's another reason I identify as a Christian. Uh, Jesus told a lot of these parables, emotional word pictures, in order to communicate truths that you couldn't put in black and white like math formulas. So again, I'm not some religious whack guy trying to shove the Jesus pill down your throat, all right? And I'm not your guru and I'm not your therapist, but I want you to to trust me a little bit, right? Like I'm not out here to convert atheists into believers. Um, The person that shared the little article about how the the title was how progressive Christianity can lead to unbelief. And And I agree with that. It can lead to unbelief. But I think it's really important to raise the question, unbelief in what? I have our atheist friend and we were on some, there was something going on that he was encountering uh, angry Christians. <laughs> I think it was coming at him. And I was sort of defending his position as an atheist. I can't remember what it was about, but he, he sent me something about 
how we got to get these people to understand. And I'm, and I had to step back a moment in, in the conversation and in relationship with my atheist friend and say, wait, listen, I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Johnny Cash. All right. Like, I'm not sure you and I are on the same page. Um, we're on the same page about a lot of things, but the roots, like some of the human progression of existential philosophy, science, where these things stemmed from, the thinkers, how we as humans in the world progressed to this place. Which brings me to the label progressive Christian. So this article was by Alicia Childers, and Randy Alcorn had some uh, kind things to say about it. Uh, Randy Alcorn has been a big uh, critic of of William Paul Young's The Shack, by the way. Um, Anyway, the the article is titled, uh, Three Beliefs Some Progressive Christians and Atheists Share. I'll put a link to this on uh, heart, mind, love, sex, and affection. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the three beliefs are this, and maybe you Christians who listen would be curious about my position on those. So quickly, as a tease, I guess I'll go through these really fast, and and, and I'm going to answer them one by one. But number one is uh, they may adopt a belief that the Bible is unreliable. And for me, I think for the Bible to be uh, reliable. It needs to be relatable. So I might, uh, if it's reliable, it's relatable. Does that make sense? I remember in some early shows, I talked about the Bible as like an instruction manual for life. And I no longer hold that position. I think it's way deeper than that. And that's kind of a literalist position. I was kind of talking about what I learned and it was my social norm. Yeah, the Bible's an instruction manual for life. Um, but in order for it to be relatable, like if you're going to buy an instruction manual, you're going to buy one for the vehicle that you own, right? Like if you have a, a Dodge Grand Caravan like I do, you, you go after the things in there that, are related to that if that makes sense hopefully that makes sense because we approach the bible if we're going to see it it's just it's god's story all right so is it reliable is it true are they talking about inerrancy um there's just there's a lot of metaphor in there jesus uses the analogy of a mustard seed is the mustard seed the smallest seed no science can prove it's not does that mean the bible is has full of holes and errors um yes and no right it's again there we're so addicted to i need it black and white man give me the answers it's, it's 
it's certainty addiction. Um, and, and but listen, certainty addiction. Uh, if you're not a certainty addict, that doesn't mean you're confused either. And I think that's important. So I'm going to relate to this question more as is the Bible relatable than is it reliable? Because if it's not relatable, how can it be reliable? And the third thing, um, a progressive, a dangerous progressive and an atheist will agree on is uh, they may affirm cultural adapting morality. Um, I got a lot to say on that one. I might do a whole nother show on it. I will do a whole nother show on it, actually, but let's get into it. Why? Because much like my atheist friend uh, wanting to understand what makes me tick, how I think, um, as it seems, I'm also working to build trust with uh, Christians that listen as well, that may think I'm a heretic. I, I, again, I want you to uh, trust me uh, that my motives are pure, that I'm not, you know, I'm not obviously not trying to get rich, right? Uh, <laughs> just trying to get the bills paid on this thing is why I talk about money. But I, I, it's laughable. Um, the time I spend doing this, and how it makes really no sense financially. My motivation really is that there are ears that are listening. And maybe for you Christians who listen, you're also concerned about my listeners and that I'm leading people astray. Which could be a big reason that donations to the show have dried up completely. Especially after maybe you've heard the Punk Theology podcast. And Punk Theology is is me... In, with my friends, all right, at doing the best to assert my thoughts, my being, my person to the people I love, uh, the people I like, and uh, I'm not some authority figure in that room, and neither are they over me. We're just equals sharing our stories and how we see the world. That's what that's what that podcast is, as well as some interviews. I just interviewed Jay Baker, by the way, uh, author, speaker, son of uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Talk about having your heart broken and your truster broken. Um, the amazing guy, Jay Baker. Uh, but anyway, he, he would also be considered a, a big progressive <laughs> by the people who want to otherize <laughs> their Christian brothers and sisters, right? We've got to draw lines here. Um, do I end up on the other side of some line? Maybe you can judge for yourself, I suppose. But I'm glad you're listening, and uh, I think this stuff is important especially when it comes to transformation. And that's been uh, a critique of mine to popular Christian theology today is most of it is a way to put up a wall and to keep yourself safe. It's, it's not conducive to life change, to transformation, and to overcoming really sticky, stubborn, dare I say, sins. Um, she kicks off the book by talking about uh, Bart Campolo, who is a son of the famous evangelist Tony Campolo, who's become a, a secular humanist. Um, I don't agree with Tony 
I mean, I, I like him. I do. Right. I don't, but I don't agree with Bart on a lot of things. And, uh, but he's, he's pushing the, the boundaries of traditional pop Christian theology and the way church is done. And I think that's really good and healthy. And the way that the church responds, I think is important. Let me correct that. The way pastors who are using that word is the pastor is an analogy for someone who leads sheep, right? He's a spiritual teacher and hopefully he sets a certain example for his own life and how he communicates and interacts with someone like Bart, I think is really interesting and really important today, especially whoever you pastors are out there that may be listening still. And listen, I think your struggles with your sexuality and compulsive behavior even have a lot to say and how you work that out in your own life, man. I'm glad you're listening, if you are, all right? Uh, She tends to critique deconversion stories. And listen, for me, I think that uh, deconversion is something that happens during deconstruction. And the God that they used to believe in, they don't believe in anymore. And I get that because I think that Jesus has been kicked out of popular American religion, especially when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to how you present yourself to the world while in the right in the in the shadows and at home you're struggling right like a like a duck with the little your feet are but on the surface hey you know it's like that there's uh, lyrics i think it was a leonard skinnerd song that said you know keep your shiny side up and your dirty side down that's become the message of popular christianity and i think that uh, it's you know, it's it's coming to a head, right? Like people are downing pills like crazy, and and we're going to therapists and secular psychologists to see transformation and life change because the church has become in, impotent at that. It's sad to say, that popular theology is proving that. It's like my pastor friend Chuck Hickman said. He says, I send people to a therapist. I send them to a mental health professional. I think that's awesome <laughs> that he does that because he realizes, hey, you know, I'm not here to to fix some of these deep emotional wounds. Um, sin, that word, is is it can be unhelpful, you know. Therapists have words breaking down that word like depression, anxiety, addiction. Um, anyway, number one on her three lists of beliefs that some progressives and atheists believe. Um, they may adopt the belief that the Bible is unreliable. And I may add, unrelatable. And how would I respond to that? Um, I like the Bible. I'm a Bible guy. I uh, I love the Bible. I could say, but people would ask me like, "Is there what is the correct you know um, Bible that I should be reading?" And I've given subject- suggestions. Um, 
I have about three that I like, but the facts are, if you want the, like, what's the best? The best is the original Bible written in Hebrew, Aramaic, right? And Greek, like this, the Bible wasn't written in English. So to say the Bible is unrelatable, it can very well be unrelatable because it wasn't written in English. And there's over a hundred different translations in English of the Bible. All right. And to say it's unreliable is where I may agree a little <laughs> with the author on how some folks can say, well, you know, I- historically inaccurate. And, and what are they basing that off of? Like a mustard seed isn't really the smallest seed, Russ. So there's a lot of different people coming up with a lot of different conclusions based on their interpretation. From Genesis to Revelations, there's a lot of different ways people have translated the text, and some of them are unrelatable. The NIV has agenda, just just reeks of agenda in some places, the way that it's translated. And that's why I believe it's important to talk about, if you're going to say unreliable and use that word, that we don't just black and white it, like objectively, bringing relatable into the conversation is addressing the, you know, the inerrancy debate that people love to get into. Now, do I believe translations like the NIV are inerrant? (laughs) Oh, heck no. And I would like to believe that there's a lot of biblical scholars who would agree with me on that. Now, do I like the NIV? Yeah, it's a okay translation. Tenth grade reading level. Um, they, it, it's a translation. It's a Protestant translation of the Bible, and that's another thing. Is Orthodox Christians and Catholics they they have different books in their Bibles than the Protestant Bible, which is based on the King James version of the Bible, which came from Martin Luther. Um, she, she puts this quote by Rob Bell. It says, uh, the Bible is a profoundly human book. And, and she tries to, it looks like she's trying to defend it, right? Or, or say that it's, it's not human. It's divinely inspired. I believe that, but it was written down by humans. And that's something that uh, theologians, especially in the last hundred, 200 years, uh, we're not asking big questions like, why was that written down <laughs> in the Old Testament, especially? Why did these folks write those stories down? Uh, getting curious about that, I think, is really important. Rob Bell wrote a, a great book. I, I, th- I suggest I recommend that book. I would encourage you to read it. Do I agree with everything in it? No, of course not. Um, but again, the way that desire is working itself out in your heart and mind, listen, you got to start asking and, and getting out of your comfort zone when it comes to intellect on some of these things, all right? If you keep doing the things and thinking in the terms that you have been in the past, things aren't going to change. And some of you pastors and scholars out there, you'll run around pointing at the other, saying, you need to repent of sin, yet getting 
right? Working out something like this in your own heart and mind, your own life and understanding your own sexuality. Like it's easy to point the finger outward and project that stuff out onto the world. But dealing with it yourself is going to take um, reading some people that the popular establishment may call heretics, especially in the epidemic that we have of sexually compulsive behavior, especially when it comes to porn use in the church. So yeah, Rob Bell, that's somebody I used to judge even on this here show because I never read his material. It's the same with Paul Young, William Paul Young. I judged the shack because something my pastor said, and I trusted that cat, right? You gotta start thinking for yourself and, and owning the things that we struggle with. And yes, you as an individual, but also coupling that with what is popular Christian culture in the world and why we're so blind to conform to it. And here in the U.S., we've exported a lot of what Western evangelical Christianity is to the rest of the world. And I'm challenging you with getting curious about, curious enough to read even Rob Bell. Why is this book so important? Even some of my atheist friends like that. I recommend this book. It's called What is the Bible? How an Ancient Library of Poems, Letters, and Stories Can Transform the Way You Think and Feel About Everything by Rob Bell. That's a great title, by the way, too. But And I do recommend this book. Um, so unreliable really you hear uh folks saying you know well you're cherry picking all right unless you again unless you speak ancient hebrew and greek everyone's cherry picking all right everyone does that everyone's translating and choosing the translations that they like best we're all doing it all right i hate to break that to you but honestly sit in your space Right. And and think on that and dwell on that. What you have learned, odds are, is just from whatever popular stream you're drinking from. If you're going to grow, if you're going to change, you're going to have to start drinking from different streams. Streams that don't try and divide people with intellectual fear mongering, for example. Is the Bible unreliable? Like, what kind of question is that? It's a question that... Actually, it wasn't a question. It was more like, they believe the Bible's unreliable. You see, raising a question inspires a conversation, which is not what was going on here. This is someone's opinion. I get that. But you have to ask yourself, is this person raising this question out of fear or other-centered, self-giving love? All right. Does that sound progressive? I don't know. I don't really like the term progressive. There's not that much humility in it. But again, this is the way I think, hopefully, putting that out in the world as an incredibly imperfect, flawed human myself and as someone with my little sphere of influence, while it brings a little sadness and isn't my intention, 
tends to be mostly Christian, um, how we think about our bodies, how we think about sexuality and touch and intimacy, uh, that's how I'm out here working to change the world. All right. And how do I work to do that? Hopefully by not approaching people with eyes of judgment or I'm going to straighten you out, but by loving them, coupled with through the motivation and approach of being curious because I care, asking better questions. Um, because a better question isn't really, honestly, isn't a better question. Do I believe the Bible is unrelatable? No. And the, the, Rob Bell wrote a whole book on that. Like that's what his book is based on is how incredibly human and relatable the Bible is. If it isn't human, how are we supposed to relate to it? The, again, this is a, an example of how Christian theology has become much like like some rigid instruction manual, or it's like going to law school or something like that. And God is purely objective judge. You know, God sits up there with a lightning bolt in his hand, ready to zap bad people. You know, I guess if you see God that way, we're supposed to relate to God that way. If that's how you interpret the Bible, yeah, I would say the Bible is unrelatable. But do I think the Bible is unreliable? From my perspective, no, absolutely not. I think it's a great book. It's a beautiful book. It's a very relatable book, unless it's been shoved down your throat by some abusive, power-hungry authority. Um, you're, yeah, I could see how you could say, yeah, it's totally unrelatable. And I see how that could stir anger in the heart and how that could get people to have really objective, scientific even kind of views that would motivate them to pick it apart and to prove why it's unreliable. Again, this is the subjective history of our stories and how we see the world through whatever colored lenses we were taught, right? Number two. They may have an unresolved answer to the problem of evil. And this is a huge one, philosophically. All right. This is the theodicy, I believe it's called. The problem of evil. Like if there's a good God who's good and love and God is love, then why is there so much hurt and evil? And there's one atheist who said, you know, if I died and went to heaven and faced God, I'd say bone cancer and kids. What's that about? And he said that, you know, God is horrible and maniacal. Um, my answer to that would be, you know, there's a song that I love so much. He's also an inspiration for for doing the podcast as well a little bit. Just telling my story from my perspective, right? But uh, I think it's Matthew West who talked about, you know, shaking this guy, shaking his fist at God, going, there's so much evil in the world. How dare you? How dare you let all these people suffer? What are you going to do about it? What have you done about it? And, and God answers back, um, I made you. That's what I did about it. See, us humans and how we relate to the world in relationships and in community with other fallen, 
imperfect, flawed people, how we do all of that, how we are kind to one another, how we can be loving and charitable to one another. That's what changes the world, man. That's what pushes back evil and darkness in the world. It's a big part of why I do this. I want to push back the lies that some of you believe about yourself because of unwanted sexual behavior, because of a voice in the back of your head telling you how gross and dirty and horrible you are. Uh, I've had that too. I, I can relate to that. I know exactly how that feels. I want to push back on that. I want to expose some light and some truth in that area in your life, hopefully. Um, so yeah, the problem of evil, do I think it's unresolvable or do I have a unresolved answer? Uh, Of course I do. Like I don't, I mean, so my question would be back to the question answer. Like sometimes someone will ask you a question to kind of bait you. Jesus even talks about that in the scriptures, right? Like the Pharisees are constantly trying to bait Jesus with questions and they're hoping he's got some, you know, yes or no kind of answer to these really heavy, deep questions. And he usually answers them with a story. You know, there was a donkey and a wine press and (laughs) even the disciples, I imagine, could have got a little frustrated because Jesus is not black and white. He's not going to objectively answer your questions like that. He's going to bring a subjective story um, into the mix uh, to to bring light of truth, I believe. Um, So when someone asks me a question like that, my question would be back at them. I would say something like, so you have an answer for all of the evil in the world. You have an answer for that. And yeah, I get it. They'll probably go back to the, to the book of Genesis and, and talk about the snake and the, you know, and and I get that. Like that's a story that's in the book of Genesis. But again, that story is highly metaphorical. Whether you believe it literally happened, like I'm, if I'm a betting man, all right, I'll just tell you that I'm, I'm betting that that is a metaphor, right? Like the, the book of Genesis is steeped. The Hebrew, ancient Hebrew language is based on metaphor. So for me, it's not a stretch to go, yeah, that's, I don't know if there was a talking snake, but this is, uh, this is human. This is very human story. This is very relatable. (laughs) If I'm to, uh, you know, Rob Bell's, uh, take on it. This is a very relatable, incredibly relatable story um, when it comes to the problem of evil. Doing this show on sexual ethics, right? To use those words. Um, who told you you were naked when God comes back to see them, right? They were in the beginning naked and unafraid and unashamed. So do I have an easy answer to resolve the question of evil I think anyone who says they do is being arrogant and and that's unhelpful if someone's really struggling Paul Young wrote a book uh, called Eve and in the beginning he talks the book is centered around a character who was sex trafficked you know there's some of us who have experienced profound suffering 
And for someone to give, even with my story, and I had this in the past, and someone to tell me the the devil snake story or the devil with a pitchfork running around, oh, I'm going to make you do bad, you know, and the devil popping up on my shoulders, things like this were just unhelpful, all right? I didn't, couldn't relate to them. I, or I just f- concluded that I was just bad and the devil was my buddy. Because I, especially in the 80s, right, this music that came out that was, it was like the blues for white people. I don't know. It wasn't all white. I mean, come on, rock and roll, Russ, it was birthed out of the blues. But white people really attached themselves to it, you know. Uh, and, of course, yeah, sure, we had Chuck Berry. There was a lot of great black rockers out there. So Jimi Hendrix came from here in Seattle, right? Um, anyway. <laughs> I digress a little bit there. Um, there was all these televangelists talking about how satanic rock and roll was and how it was the devil's music and stuff. And, and I just was like, why does it make so much sense to me? Why is it, why can I relate to the hurt and, you know, feeling ostracized, feeling like a misfit, um, feeling like I don't fit in that, that music, saved my life I can honestly say so um yeah that <laughs> I don't know what how that did that Ozzy Osbourne helped Metallica helped resolve the problem of evil for me more than uh a lot of bible teachers who made me feel like uh like this is not where I fit in at all the problem of evil tends to get under our skin and it, it transforms our identity or it lies to us in, you know, like propitiation. That's been, since I've gone through trauma therapy and a lot of therapy, meeting Paul Young and would he be considered a progressive? I, I don't know. That's funny how they didn't mention him in the article. <laughs> Randy Alcorn goes after Paul Young all the time calling him a progressive and that's just you know progressives are wrong or um emergent is another one uh, a word that people use the the idea that you know God the Father thinks that we're all just horrible and we all need to be drowned like the book of uh, Genesis, the Noah story, you know, the, the way that's interpreted, the way that's understood, we're all made in the image of God. There's, I've talked about that in, in some other shows, but I think it's theology and is important and how we view ourselves through the eyes of the creator, uh, yeah, the problem of evil is a big one. And no, I don't have a good answer for it. Because much like love, the problem of evil is as unique as your fingerprint and your own story. I think popular Christian theology has assumed a sort of corporate presence where the answers are like the products that the church sells. And you know, you ever met someone like that? They just have all the answers. Like, I got to be the answer guy. Even to questions that are, there's really not good answers for. Like the problem of evil. Like, if someone says they have all the answers to the problem of evil, like, I'm concerned. 
you know, or somebody who's got the Bible all figured out. The guy that says that, uh, I, you know, I danger, right? I got red blinking lights showing up when somebody says, oh yeah, I understand the Bible fully. The Bible says about itself that it's hard to understand. All right. Peter talking about the writings of the apostle Paul. And number three, and number three is a big one. Um, they may affirm cultural adapting morality. And this is the controversy around LGBTQ and whether you support gay marriage or not. If you do support it, you're affirming. If you don't, you're not affirming. Again, we're addicted to black and whites. I don't think it's that black and white. And since the beginning of this show, I've been a guy who was like, what is your problem with gay marriage? Honestly. And a big part of that is is the way I read the Bible and interpret the Bible. All right. There's Jesus doesn't say anything about homosexuality. The Apostle Paul does. And there's a whole bunch of other things that he lists in in there. All right. It could be about promiscuous sexuality um, and same-sex sexually compulsive behavior. That's way. That's the way some traditions, like Methodists, interpret that piece of scripture. I don't think Methodist Christians are considered progressive either. By the way, you know, here let me let me uh, pause for a second. That word progressive. Okay, what popular Christianity is doing? There's there's it's like it's conformity based emotional support around our American Jesus. All right. Confirmation bias is something that's talked about in social psychology, and it is based on, again, we're going to go into feelings here. All right. There's a feeling of belonging. It's subconscious for a lot of us. We want to feel we belong to the right way of doing Jesus, a lot of Christians. And again, if you read the Bible, Jesus was very radical when it came to the popular religion of his day. You know, and I've said that since the beginning, too. Jesus wasn't starting some new religion. Jesus was called rabbi. They called him rabbi. All right. He's a Jewish man. He's not a white guy like the Catholic artistry likes to to portray him blonde hairs and blue eyes flowing like some metal singer. No, he was a brown guy. He was Jewish. He was a Jew. All right. He challenged Old Testament translations of stuff that God said, you know, you, you say, uh, eye for an eye. I say, love your enemies. You know, he, he totally, how would Christians put it? Some of my own critics um, contradicted the Bible itself. The Torah, it's called, for the Jews. So yeah, Jesus himself, because he loves people, all right? And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like, that's pretty controversial when it comes to this idea of propitiation today in popular Christian theology. God loves the world even, all right? Oh, that's the world, the world this and the world that. A lot of Christian cults love to use that to, you know, alienate people and to keep them 
in the the cult, right? To say, oh, you can't trust people out there because that's the world. The Bible says God so loved the world, he gave. God gave. Anyway, sorry, I had to go off on that little tangent. But back to uh, LGBTQ. Since the beginning, I've said um, Matthew 5, right? Jesus says, like, like he's all these stories. He just raises the bar on how the Pharisees, uh, the popular religious elitists of his time, were defining sin, for example. And, you know, like, hey, I haven't cheated on my wife, so I'm, uh, I'm not an adulterer. And Jesus says, oh, yeah, <laughs> right? I haven't murdered anyone. And Jesus is like, well, I say that if you've, you know, yelled raka, right? If you've said F you in traffic, you're guilty of murder. So I think that what Jesus was doing was demonstrating absurdity by being absurd to a certain degree. Because he ends the chapter, chapter five in Matthew with be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Um, but he goes, he, he said, he talks about marriage too. He says that if you've, if you've been divorced, you need to, you need to go back to that person that you first married, because if you marry someone else, that's you practicing ongoing sin. So when Christians would say things like, well, gay people, they're, they're sinners. And then they, they live together and they're practicing sin. I was like, well, what do you, if you're going to literally, you know, interpret the Bible that way, then what, why do you accept divorced people and I'm not trying to shame divorced people when I say that too and I'm, I was you know I want to say I want to say that to anybody who's divorced that listens because I've been it, the reason I tell that story is to demonstrate like why are we so hard on gay people and not hard on our own inability to be in heterosexual relationships you know we just assume that all gay people are promiscuous and and you know it's it's sad. On the next episode, I'm going to go more into this idea of, uh, you know, what the... And here's here's another thing. Like, she, uh, they affirm cultural adapting morality. Um, there's been a lot of things that have changed the way Christians adapt to culture. And a lot of it's some of it's scientific, you know, like there's all these different things that have happened in behavioral science, as well as in, you know, realizing that the world isn't flat. I know there's still people out there trying to argue the world is flat, which I think is hilarious. But um, you get what I'm saying, right? Like, there was bishops that said that if you believed the world was round, you were a heretic. There was people killed for this kind of thinking. All right. The culture adapts based on what we realize to be true. And we've been studying psychology a really long time. And there's just a number of research papers and studies that have been done. And just the, the sad, sad stories of, of people trying to change their, you know, same-sex attraction and leading to suicide. Things like this, like every major... Uh, psychological 
you know, people that have studied this stuff. And, and this was in the DSM before, all right, that homosexuality was a disease or a, a, there was, but we've realized that that's not true now, all right? That yes, people are actually born with this. Just like some people are born transgendered. We, the, you know, there's people born with birth defects. Well, how could God do that? Like, uh, again, we're going back to the problem of evil. You know, and there's, that's why Calvinism was such a horrible thing for me. I remember being a teenager and learning about predestination and then just concluding that, oh, okay, I was never loved by God in the first place. Like, that's horrible. That's horrible to, to teach that, to have people conclude that. And a big one for me to more... <sighs> because I talked about Exodus International in the beginning of the show. Like, I'll be honest, I didn't know a whole lot about it. I was abused by someone of the same sex, and I, I'm not gay. Like, I don't find male bodies. There was a time during my compulsive behavior that I could have gone that way just because I was honestly kind of getting sick of vaginas, maybe, right? I don't know, but, I, I you know, I'm not gay. So... I find men's bodies like I couldn't kiss a guy. That was kind of my my thing. Like I thought the idea of kissing a guy would be gross. But in my sexual compulsive behavior and, uh, you know, going down on a guy or a guy giving me oral sex could have been acceptable at that time. But again, romantically thinking about a male body, I found repulsive. Um, so. Today, yeah, I think I, I, I find male bodies like it's not, it's not something I want romantically or even lust after anymore. After seeing some freedom from the compulsive behavior, um, yeah, I didn't view uh, gay pornography in the compulsive stages. I did a little bit just because, again, needing something different. So that's part of the addiction you just you know the old images what got you off last week doesn't get you off this week when you're progressing in the behavior that's what happens um, but progressing as Christians maybe it's time we realize and you know reevaluate some of our interpretations of what those scriptures said um, because listen trying to pray away the gay and and conversion therapy there's books written by people who day in day out worked with other humans humans they loved humans they believed god loved and those folks those those folks weren't changed all right and, and, and a matter of fact they were they did harm to a lot of those folks and now there's been books written by former conversion therapy people the Exodus International no longer exists, for example, because they realized what they were doing was harming people, was hurting people. Uh, that should wake people up. But guess what? The popular idea in, in pop theology in Christianity today is that homosexuality is sin and it's the practice of sin and gay 
Christians can't lead groups in a, like a community group in a church. They can't work in a church. They can't be pastors, um, except for you know the Methodists and some other denominations out there. But the popular, again, most Christians in my country um, reject homosexuals. Like they'll say, "Oh, well, we love them." You don't like them, and you don't want to know them, and you don't want to be friends with them, and. Uh, that's why I like shows like uh, Modern Family. Like here, Modern Family is a cool show because it introduces us to a gay couple, and especially Christians. Like, think all gay couples are, I don't know, promiscuous or they have some. And there's a lot of stereotypes in that show. There is, but it also shows a relationship. And this, they're just people, man. Like, why can't we love people like that, right? And when I say love people like that, I, I get it, right? Everyone in the religion business is like, oh, I love the other, of course. It's a lot harder to like them and even, you know, want to share your life with them and be friends with them. Being friends with someone and liking them is, is a lot harder than, it's easy to say you love your neighbor, for example. Try liking them, <laughs> as my friend Jim Henderson says. It's so true. So uh, do I affirm cultural adapting morality? Yes, I don't believe the world is flat and I don't see um, my homosexual brothers and sisters as, you know, reprobate, evil sinners, you know, this infecting our culture with same-sex ideas, this, this idea that there's an infection out there people are gay or they're not gay. You're not going to force someone to be gay. It's not something that's caught like liking Justin Bieber or something like that. Like, the cultural influence, the, the psychology is going to say that this runs pretty deep. All right. It's not something that